Recording in progress, everybody. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. That's how I wound up with a bag of feet. <laughs> wow, so strange. <laughs> <laughs> they were all on fire? Yeah, it was a weird moment. Really hard but, in water. but I think everyone at the end was, was really grateful that it wound up the way it did. So, Is, <laughs> is that when you called the tow truck? <laughs> I it, no no it's like I'm as you know Bruce I'm very stubborn so you know I tried to I'm here hauling those feet by myself for miles and then it was you know what it's time it's time it's time called it <laughs> hello and welcome to this latest post summer I want to say reunion episode of Beam Radio today I am joined by co-hosts Alex Kutmos howdy howdy hi Alex uh, we've got Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody from the Great Loop in Michigan. Welcome, Bruce, from the Great Loop and Stephen Nunez. Hello there. Welcome, Stephen. And we also have a very special guest that I'm going to introduce in just a bit, but a couple of things that we want to tell our listeners about first. Uh, a couple of updates, and then, of course, we'll get the latest on Graxio from Bruce. So first up, uh, our listeners may remember that we encourage you guys to submit questions to us on Twitter via the hashtag process mailbox at Beam Radio One. We want your questions about all things Beam. We want your questions about Elixir, about Erlang, about any of the stuff that we talk about uh, so often on this show. We wanna hear from you. And I think we'll go back to doing some giveaways based on folks that do submit questions and have their questions answered. We have some free t-shirts for you guys and they're very beautiful t-shirts. They're excellent quality. I highly recommend them. Uh, secondly, we've got some really cool stuff coming up at CodeBeam. So I want our listeners to know that you can get 20% off tickets using the code BEAMRADIO20. I think that's an excellent deal. I would love to see you guys there. Uh, Steven and I also have a workshop coming up at CodeBeam. It's a virtual workshop, so you can attend from anywhere in the world without actually having to fly to San Francisco. It is the Tuesday uh, right before the conference. So I think that's November 1st, and we'll be teaching our Mastering Live View workshop. You will be proficient and able to ship Production Live View professionally. That's a lot of P words. Uh, after our day-long workshop, and we'd love to see you guys there. We have a blast teaching it. And Bruce, I think you have a workshop coming up there too, so I would love to hear about that. I'm sure our listeners would as well. Frank Hunleth, which our listeners will remember, has worked uh, with myself and also with Alex on a couple of NERVS project-based books. One of those is Building a Binary Clock with NERVS and Elixir. As that book was underway, one of the things that happened was we couldn't get hardware anymore. And so we have some innovative solutions to that, but we'd like to teach a workshop on them. And it's going to be with the Risk Five Mango Pies, which are compatible with NERVS now, thanks to the great work with the NERVS team and Frank. And also we're going to be using the live book. So that's pretty exciting. And we're going to tie those concepts together with a custom chip that Frank has built that, uh, that works with the binary clock. So. Um, yeah, we'll be teaching Elixir design techniques with uh, Mango Pies, Nerves, Elixir, and a custom printed circuit board. So I know you won't want to miss that. Is your is it an in-person or is it virtual, your workshop? I know we're going to go. We're actually going to go to the... Yeah, because now I'm like, how do I teach my workshop and attend that workshop? Because it sounds amazing. And still like be you know, traveling to San Francisco in time for the conference, which I will be at as well. That sounds incredible. I really hope that our listeners check that out. So many great technologies in that list and woven together with Bruce's like 
yeah, very on brand and consistent attention to Elixir design principles. I think that's kind of a can't miss event. So thank you for that update. And before we move on and introduce our guests, I'm going to hand it back to Bruce because I think that we're dying to know after this summer, as you round out the loop, what's new with Graxio? So one of the things that's happened is that we had to put some of this on hold. Many of you have been following the Great Loop journey on Twitter. We had the seven plagues in, in Canada as we went through. Things have settled down enough to be able to put the Graxio content back on the table. And we're going to be working through the end of the live book session. One of the things that happened while we were on the Great Loop was that LiveView took a great step forward with customizations. So we're going to be working on OTP plus live book plus Kino components in the form of smart cells. And I'm really looking forward to that. And then after that, we're going to be working on LiveView native, which was a big announcement at ElixirConf. And that ties together the concepts of native development in ecosystems like Apple's Swift, and Android with Kotlin, but it weaves those two together in a way that you don't have to leave Elixir and LiveView behind. So we're going to be working on, on those concepts. We're excited to do that. We'll be getting to those uh, probably around the end of October and start taking another deep look at another way to bring LiveView into your development projects. Awesome. Thank you so much for that update. I am very excited, as you can imagine, about LiveView Native. I'm really curious to see uh, how you move through teaching it in that course, Bruce. I'll definitely be checking it out. And for any of our listeners who are interested, I think we're going to dedicate a whole episode sometime in the next couple of weeks to the topic of LiveView Native. Uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is because one thing that the LiveView team, I think, has done so incredibly well is like just say, stay so plugged into the Elixir community's usage of LiveView and just continue to plug any holes that the community finds in the framework. Okay, well, I can't use LiveView because it's difficult to do X. You know, lo and behold, a couple of weeks or months later, the framework has kind of come through with a solution to that. But the one thing that there hasn't really been an answer for up until really just now is the question of, native development and platform uh, mobile development and now that's not true anymore and i think it's uh this prediction i made a little while back that live view is going to really drive elixir adoption outside of the community like people are going to be so eager to get their hands on it that they will learn elixir and bring it into their organizations i think is going to be even more true now with live view native so very excited to to get my hands ready with that very excited to see what the Graxio course will have to say about it and keep an eye out for an upcoming episode where we really dig in. One of the things I also like about the whole concept of, of LiveView Native is that it allows us to build bridges between the user interface side and, and Elixir and still stay on the same model, right? So one of the great advantages of LiveView is it lets you keep your head in one place. And it's, it's never more true than when you're working with a detached user interface and having to kind of span and manage all the difficulties in, in building a tree-based user interface of components. It's really the same problem that's been solved on the web. So I'm really excited to see where this is going and shout out to the, the team at Dockyard and also the team at LiveView that kind of started us going down this road. It's really marvelous technology. Yeah, very cool. I think we're all very excited to get our hands on it in the next couple of weeks and months. 
All right, so without further ado, I am very excited to be introducing our special guest for today. Today we have with us Brooklyn Myers. Brooklyn is heading up Dockyard Academy, which is training the next generation of Elixir developers to join our community and continue to move it forward. Brooklyn, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Um, I mentioned before we started recording, but I feel like I've been waiting to meet you and now we get to talk mm -hmm. and I'm so excited. Uh, so we've got, you know, a ton of questions for you. I really can't wait to dig into some of these topics on teaching functional programming, teacher teaching Elixir, but I always like to start, or we like to start our guests off with uh, a common question, which is how did you get into Elixir programming in the first place? What brought you into the community? Yeah, it was kind of a wild chance of circumstance. Uh, I had a friend who was always talking about it. Um, him and I worked together and it, it was just always the kind of thing where uh, I came from the JavaScript community and there were always times when we were building things where he'd go, man, I really wish I had insert tool from Elixir right now. Uh, and it was just this constant, like, man, like this Elixir thing, he really likes it. And I really respected his opinion. Um, and so a year later or so, uh, once I uh, decided I wasn't going to work at the same company as him anymore, uh, I decided to take a sabbatical. I was kind of figuring out, hey, like, what do I want to do with my career exactly? I was really, I, I liked doing what I was doing. It was an excellent company, um, working with like React and kind of a Mern stack. Um, but I just had this this little thing in my brain that was telling me like, hey, like you need some kind of a change. In hindsight, I think it was telling me that what I really enjoyed was teaching. I discovered that like all of the moments I was the most happy in my development job were the times when I was working with other developers, uh, teaching them new concepts, introducing new ideas, working with juniors and helping them onboard onto the team. Those were always the parts that I enjoyed the most. And so I took kind of a, a two, three month sabbatical, uh, which if anyone has the opportunity to take a sabbatical, um, do it. It's like it, it nourishes your soul so much. And it's so easy to kind of get caught up in things, I think, in tech, where you're just, you know, constantly racing from the next thing to the next thing. And so it gave me this big stretch of time off where I pretty much just ate bagels and went to uh, parks in Montreal. And that was my life for two months. And with all that thinking, I started realizing, hey, like, I really want to try out this Elixir thing now. Maybe I'll start learning by writing. And so that's when I started writing in the Elixir space and creating these articles. Um, I was inspired by, uh, there's a, a JavaScript developer, Kent C. Dodds, who uh, popularized this idea of learning in public to me. And that idea of, hey, like, I want to learn something. Well, I may as well share what I'm learning. And so I started sharing the articles that eventually led to uh, the Elixir Newbie podcast, where like I started that almost on a whim, where I was like, hey, like I think it'd be kind of fun to just record myself talking for an hour. Uh, I recorded it. I showed it to my friends. They were like, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> this is clearly their first episode. Um, and then I re-recorded, and the next one was better, so I published that. Uh, and then kind of kept doing that, eventually found a uh, job in the space. Uh, there's a whole article about that um, from JavaScript to Elixir in 14 days, kind of how I how I learned Elixir rapidly by teaching. Um, and yeah, and then just by continuing down that path, eventually uh, I lucked into getting on the uh, Elixir Wizards podcast and, and meeting Sunday and, and Jeffrey and they were, uh, well, Sunday on the podcast, but Jeffrey at a, at a meetup and they're kind of the first people in the community who really inspired me to want to get more involved, um, which I think was actually pre-Elixir newbie now that I'm thinking about it. 
And uh, yeah, and then that led to me getting noticed by Dockyard, who had been looking for the right person to uh, work on Dockyard Academy. Um, Brian uh, Cardarella and I met up and we were just finishing each other's sentences. And it was just this like, oh, okay, like there's something here kind of experience. And a few weeks later, there you go. I, I was working at Dockyard Academy and not believing that someone was paying me to get to do things that I would absolutely do for free. Uh, I, I, I told Brian that uh, my when we were kind of negotiating and in the early stages where I'm like, um, I would absolutely do this for free. He's like, you shouldn't tell me that. I'm like, I know, but I would absolutely do this for free. It's funny. So one of the things that you talked about was learning in public. And um, I stumbled onto this concept. Um, I wrote, I started writing this book called Seven Languages in Seven Weeks because I was afraid uh, about where the industry was going. I thought it was going to get left behind. So I started doing this research about the direction of, of programming languages and functional programming. And I forget exactly who told me, but they said, you know, you should take this experience and make it public. You should write about it. And um, so that's that's where a huge portion of my writing career evolved. It, it kind of moved to this, this direction of, um, you know, being a, a voice and letting people join my exploration. And, and so I'm curious to, to ask you, what was that experience like? Because for me, it was a very vulnerable thing to be writing about writing about the the creation of an expert and then interviewing the, the expert for a book, knowing that that not all of what I said was uh, was right or even true. Yeah, it's it's really hard to get past the initial barrier. I kind of had to Jedi mind trick myself into being willing to put my opinions out there um, using kind of rational argument like, OK, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's like the worst thing that can happen is not that you make a bad article and everyone hates it. The worst thing that can happen is that you make a bad article and no one really cares because if you write things that people don't like, they're just not going to read them. And that's OK. That like I'm ha I, I was extremely content you know writing into the void for the first few articles before things started to pick up um frankly I, I like that uh liberty that comes with i'm kind of writing this for me and i don't need to worry about whether or not this is going to be received well and i can just you know put it out there yeah i kind of think that that is um that's a that's a very wise perspective and it took me a long time to get there and for me, it was making some pretty serious mistakes around prologue. And um, so one of the things that the Pragmatic Bookshelf tempts to do very well, and, and by the way, if any of you um, listening to us wants to write and follow Brooklyn's path, um, then then you should talk to Sophie. But one of the things that, that they try to do is try to get authors very early important feedback. And that very much happened with seven languages in seven weeks. So, Brooklyn, you talk about right, about the idea of making a mistake in public. All of the best things in seven languages in seven weeks that happened were due to making mistakes. Like, due to my mistakes in prologue, Joe Armstrong actually reviewed the Erlang work and the prologue work. And because I made some serious mistakes and because he was willing and open to assist me with them, a lot of good things happened in my career. Have you found the same for you? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Um, I was also inspired with the Elixir Newbie podcast by uh, Elixir Mix, Charles Maxwood, um, where he had talked about 
when he first started podcasting, it was all about just getting to talk to people he normally wouldn't be able to talk to. Um, and that's 100% my motivation for, for podcasting is getting to have someone on. Um, it's awesome that I get to share their story with other people and that people find value in that, but I would 100% do it if no one listened. Um, just the ability to pick their brain, understand where they're coming from, get to learn. Um, it, it opens up a lot of opportunities. I often, one of the, the big pieces of advice when I do um, some career coaching with newer devs is I try to see if they would be interested in writing because I really think it can be a career superpower. It's a great way to, when you're early on and you don't have a lot of projects, uh, it's in my opinion, a lot easier to write one article than it is to build one project. Um, you learn a ton, like it really forces you to question, um, hey, as you're talking about it, I thought I understood this concept, but now that I'm talking about it, I'm realizing I have gaps. So it really forces you uh, and enables you to clarify, hey, what is it that I don't understand? Um, and and you, you just get better. Even if you think you're writing about something you already know about, you find out, oh, there's, there's lots of information here. Um, and so I, I highly recommend for anyone who's listening, if you're hoping to kind of uh, learn more as well as expand your resume, um, give writing a try. Pick a pick a super simple concept, um, something that you think is going to be easy, and you will find out that it is not. Um, and yeah, just 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 write about it. Share your ideas. You know, there's lots of mental barriers to overcome. Like, oh, it's not original. You know, uh, which. I think the same article could be written 10 times. There'd be different information in each or people would absorb it differently. So, you know, don't let that stop you. Um, and yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I could not agree with that more. I think phrasing it as a superpower, right? That willingness to learn publicly uh, and kind of lean into that curiosity and even to write is absolutely a superpower that accelerates your career. And um, when Stephen and I were teaching at the Flatiron School, it was like a requirement of graduating this program that you published. X number of blog posts. And, you know, I'm not at all surprised to hear some of the, what you're saying, Brooklyn, that folks you talk to hesitate, you know, they say, well, I'm not going to write something that's original or groundbreaking or that hasn't been written before. That's often like the number one thing that that students would say. Um, and I think that makes it no less valuable. And one thing that I've definitely noticed uh, in myself, much more so since joining GitHub, which is the first fully remote company that I've ever worked at, which emphasizes written communication a lot, that willingness to learn publicly and the investment that I put earlier on in my career to writing just for myself to deepen my own learning um, has definitely strengthened the impact that I'm able to have at an organization like GitHub and really accelerated my development as an engineer there because I'm not afraid to make a public statement that might be wrong. And that's really, really critical, I think, to strengthen that muscle as a member on an engineering team, because, you know, there's two things that are going to happen when you do that. One, you're right. Congratulations. You've made a great decision that everyone loves and the project can move forward. You know, hooray. Or you're wrong. And now you know you're wrong because somebody told you and you learned something that you didn't know before. And then that moves the work forward in a certain way. Um, but it's so, so hard to do that. I think if you're newer to a team, newer to an organization or earlier in your career and kind of getting over that hiccup of, of that fear of being wrong um, and understanding that the worst case scenario is actually still a very positive outcome. Being wrong is not the worst case scenario because you'll have found out that you are wrong and you'll learn something new and you'll get unstuck or you'll unstick your team as a result. 
um, I think is like, is such an incredible outcome. And if you can just kind of switch that perspective, okay, actually it's not a bad thing to be wrong about this or to be found out to be wrong about it. Um, it's, it really can have an incredible impact. Um, yeah. Yeah. The worst thing is not that you're going to be wrong and people find out the worst thing is that you're going to be wrong and you don't find out. Yeah. And then, yeah, that's so true. Exactly. So true. Be loud and dumb. That's the advice I used to give. Be loud <laughs> and dumb. Yeah, that should be my tagline. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you actually, know, you did used we were... to say that a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was important because it's like you have our, you have when you're like in this sort of like immersive environment where you have an instructor and stuff like that. I was like, you do no one any favors by being really wrong and quiet. Like, be wrong and loud so we can correct it and like shift you before it becomes like a, you know, a big bigger misunderstanding. Um, yeah, just echo that the writing thing is really, really great. Don't check the last time I posted a blog post, please. Um, but it's really huge. One thing that I, I usually do is if I've had to Google something and I've got to had to refine it three times, then that's, you got to write about it. Cause it's like, this is just hard to come by. It doesn't fit into like natural language. No, I see it in a certain way that someone else is going to search for it in that way. So write about it. Um, and then also I use writing as like a tool to understand something as well. I always, when I learn something, I do this thing, weird thing where like, I imagine I'm teaching it to someone else. So I have to kind of understand it in a serial way and a blog post, especially when you're talking about like introducing a concept or a perspective on something is that sort of serial unfurling of a concept. So you have to kind of like teach yourself, you know, I'm, I'm my meta self is teaching myself this concept through writing. Uh, and then I write it and I immediately regret it because it's filled with typos because my meta self is terrible at writing. <laughs> uh, well, that then with how fast tech moves and like, uh, you know, how often a new library comes out, like, don't be afraid. Write the article, even if it's as simple as, oh, how do I get started with X? Guaranteed someone has written about it, but there's a new version. So it's probably like, you know, subtle differences here and there. And you're making a good impact on the community and helping out, you know, that other person who's literally just right behind you in line also trying to get started. So yeah, don't be afraid. Um, there's plenty of ways to get started. And I think Lars and I were actually talking about this on Twitter, where I think he's got the same advice. Just just start writing, you know, whether you're starting like a WordPress blog or a Hugo blog, like the look and feel of the blog is probably not the most important thing. Just start writing content, getting your, you know, your, your ideas out there, getting feedback. You, you never really know where these, you know, where these kinds of things are going to take you. And it's usually in a positive direction. So on that note of all of the excellent advice we're giving to all of our listeners, I want to hear more about, I want to hear about Dockyard Academy. Brooklyn, tell us everything. Yeah. So the kind of TLDR on Dockyard Academy uh, is it is a full-time course, uh, 90 day curriculum uh, that will be instructor led. So I'm going to be the instructor for that program. Um, and that has not yet launched. We don't have a specific launch date for it yet. Um, however, we're in the middle of working on the curriculum. So the curriculum is built completely in Livebook. Uh, it's completely open source. It's completely free. So anyone who wants to go through it can uh, go through it self-paced. Um, the Academy, of course, will be a full-time program instructor-led. So that'll be paid. Um, but if you, you know, for, for whatever reason, either, um, you know, money is tight and you just want to learn on your own, I'm really, really proud to be able to provide this resource to people. Um, or, you know, for lots of people, time is the biggest factor. And being able to do this on your own pace, I think is, you know, really, really fantastic. Um, and so uh, we're in the middle of working on that curriculum. It is very much in beta. 
there's lots of um, you know sharp edges still. Um, I think our getting started guide has gotten a lot smoother. We had a big influx of people after Elixir Comp, so I think that it's it's so far been pretty uh, streamlined as far as getting started with it. But you are going to find some some kind of rough edges because I'm in the middle of writing a lot of the content. Um, it's been really fun being so transparent. Uh, like the entire way anyone who wants to has been able to follow along with the creation of the course they've been able to see me change my mind uh changing the outline changing the direction changing the topics that we're going to cover changing how we're doing these lessons um you know someone awesome like alex comes out with this new tool for visualizing supervision trees and okay well now i got to rewrite all of this content because i'm not missing out on that um and so it has been a really cool journey it's also something that um, people can get involved with. So it's a, like I said, open source curriculum. So people can contribute. Um, that's been a lot of like bug fixing. We've also had people um, add some like really fantastic scripts that make managing it easier. Um, Kian Meng, who is my absolute hero. Um, I haven't gotten to actually meet him properly yet, but he's just been a super active contributor. Uh, added code spell to the project. And oh my gosh, am I thankful. Um, <laughs> having automatic spell checking on our CI was huge. Um, so that has made my life a lot, uh, more, more convenient. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the, I, I said TLDR and then as with all things, I just kind of lost myself in talking. <laughs> no, that was incredibly succinct. Um, I actually, I didn't know that you guys were also offering it as a free open source curriculum. I think that's so incredible. I have a lot of questions that I want to dig into about what content you're putting in there, how you're conceiving of this curriculum, conceptualizing of it, but before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit more about where Livebook comes into the picture. And I'm sure that Bruce in particular has some questions about that too. So what has Livebook brought to the table, do you think, for this curriculum that you really didn't have before? Yeah, and I kind of want to um, piggyback on this question. So one of the things that we just talked about was was the role of writing and learning. And I think that this is so important to be able to, to have a place to take your own notes as you're making your own discovery, as a place to collaborate on code and um, and prose side by side. And I mean, obviously, Groxio uses the tool a lot in our small focused corporate and public classes that are kind of very short ones, which is not really what you're doing, but still the concept of elixir with prose and the opportunity to both direct and to allow some note note taking and reinforcement is such a powerful concept and i want to i want to hear what you're doing with it i'm, I'm excited about um, hearing somebody else uh, take advantage of this to advance elixir yeah i i often think of livebook um as the most powerful blogging platform i could ask for it's not actually a blogging platform but that really is what it lets me do is I can create this really interactive, highly engaging content that has markdown instruction with code cells that can have, you know, examples or um, exercises and feedback. It's incredibly extendable. Um, so, for example, uh, I've created a testing and feedback system within Livebook so the student can have their exercise. They don't need to see all of the tests and they can just continuously reevaluate their exercise. We can even do things like tracking how many times a student has run the code without it passing to be able to, you know, provide feedback or suggestions. You know, the student being able to have the place where they receive their instruction and the place where they perform their work be in the same location, I think is huge because then uh, they can read through the material, take 
their notes. They can actually add in more instruction themselves or say, hey, like I found this link or they can play with the code. They can. So it's just really, really all inclusive. You know, I don't need to read the article or the the word file that the teacher posted and then go to my code editor and work on it separately or clone a repo or like the seamlessness um, is just really fantastic. And then, yeah, the extendability, like being able to essentially create any UI that I want, like that Lightbook gives you that power, right? You have the ability to create any visual that you want. If you want to make some HTML widget type thing, you can do that. If you want to make some, uh, a UI that will actually, you know, power some code, like the smart cells that you were talking about, you know, it's just unbelievably rich um as far as what you can do with it like right now kind of on the side uh one of my seven side projects as, as there always are many on the the table is to build a formatter for x unit uh that'll be specifically for live books so that rather than kind of having your your classic x unit output um maybe you could do something a little bit more powerful like rendering some some toggleable html elements um having it so you can hide the test see the code that was running just um that's that's my aspiration for it it's super super new it's not ready for prime time even at all um but that's one of the ideas i've been working on so yeah it's it's uh incredible it, it inspires just ample amounts of creativity because you know the the ecosystem is so rich and there's so much you can do with it yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it strikes a very good balance where you don't need to start a whole new, you know, Elixir Mix project or anything like that. You could do kind of everything in line. And, you know, while you're probably not going to ship that snippet of code, it makes it ridiculously convenient to test out a new idea or play with something kind of in a nice, you know, contained and, uh, and succinct way. Not that Elixir has a ton of boilerplate and, and Mix projects are heavy duty anyways, but I think this lowers the barrier even further. And I definitely want to add that uh, as uh, Hugo and I are writing uh, the Elixir Patterns book, having access to like Vega Light and all the mermaid uh, visualizations just makes learning such a breeze. And you could, you could really, really step up how you portray a lot of these concepts and, and walk through them. And I think that adds another layer of, of, uh, of understanding to, to students and, and people who are using the tool. Yeah, Brooklyn and, and Alex, both, you, you both kind of mentioned this idea of eliminating friction. You know, one of the things that I learned when Frank and I put on the course at ElixirConf with NERVS is that we just took the compile time and the, the, the cycle time down to zero. And when you have a, a team of students that are kind of working on that, you know, my goodness, how powerful that that combination is so so not only are we providing this this framework um, brooklyn where you said that we could kind of present information and alex you said that you can you have a different way of ex experts to to present information and even prototype but you're also providing a way to work with the language that didn't exist before where you could prototype small concepts where you could take those small concepts and package them and then push them off into an Elixir project, an Elixir mix project, and then attach those to a live book and then bring a small team together and and collaborate on those concepts. And when we could do that in the context of Brooklyn, your, your uh, course, or Alex, your book, or um, Frank and I's nerve project, and it all kind of worked seamlessly, I get why Julia and Python and all these languages started moving so much more quickly once they had the, the notebook capabilities booked in. Yeah, I totally agree. 
And then I think the fact that it's actually pretty easy to contribute back to these projects, right? Like I was just tinkering around one night and uh, I, I did a very, very simple POC for the supervision tree. And then Jose's like, oh, we actually have a, we actually have an issue open on Kino. You should, you should do this. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a big, uh, that's a big ask. But I mean, the code isn't too bad to, you know, to, to really get a holdover. And uh, like, it's very, very well architected. It's, it's really nice and, and easy to contribute. And uh, I, I think that kind of empowers users as well, where you know, maybe they want to do something in Kino and Livebook, but maybe the functionality isn't there. You know, fork it, start playing around and, you know, maybe try to contribute back and help people down the road. Yeah, I think the ability for anyone to get involved uh, and add to the ecosystem, build tools for Livebook, it's super exciting. Like, I, I feel like since starting the curriculum um, about eight months ago or so, the ecosystem has already grown so much. Uh, and I'm, I'm only seeing more and more things coming out and more creativity. And I have I have a whole notes um, notes page dedicated to just like ideas that could be implemented in Livebook. Uh, like I don't even I don't even have enough time. There's too many there's too many things to build that would be I think really exciting. I want to dive into something that you brought up a little bit earlier. The Dockyard Academy, like the live books, the open source stuff, right? Is that like does Dockyard have a plan for where they're going to be taking that, or is that kind of mutable in that based on feedback from people, you know, on GitHub or in the community, you're kind of uh, adjusting that on the fly and and kind of catering to what people are asking for. Yeah, so um, because it's open source, we're able to grow with the community. Um, right now, we have the live book curriculum um, where, you know, and, and we do come out with, if, if we have something that we need, my hope is to just share it with the community, make it open source and, and kind of let other people use the things that we come up with as, you know, like um, one of the big things that was useful as an educator was creating uh, hidden cells. So made a um, smart cell that would just hide some code. Like that's super simple use case, but sometimes there's times where you just want to have the output of some code, but you don't want um, any of the code actually powering it. Uh, you know, that's as a teacher, sometimes you need to write some code that it's really not important for the students to see, or they could find it potentially overwhelming. Um, and so every once in a while, things are just driven by uh, necessity, like it's the same thing with the formatter, where I want a better way to display output to students. So that's something I'm going to uh, work on. So some things are driven by necessity. And yeah, absolutely. Other things are driven by community feedback. Like one of the biggest things we got feedback on since the inception of the course was, hey, navigation is really inconvenient. Like it's really annoying to have this index of live books to go into one. And then there's no really clear UI to go to the next lesson, like you'd have to go back to the index and then click the next page. And it just wasn't very smooth. Um, and so we solved that problem by, because live books are just text files, like it's just a dot live MD. There's no special way that it's stored. It's not, you know, JSON under the hood or something like it's just text. Um, so because of that, we were able to read our index file, determine file order, and then use that to generate navigation at the bottom of every live book so that as you're working through the exercise, you just scroll to the bottom. Cool. Next lesson um, and making that smoother. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely open to the community. Same thing with the topics. So the content of the course will change to grow with community feedback. One of the things I did early on 
was just speak to companies, speak to developers, speak to pretty much anyone um, who I could pester with my questions uh, and just ask them, what do you think is the most important thing? Uh, what do you think are the most important things for new developers to have? Um, you know, what are the concepts? And so we're trying to keep our curriculum as focused on being applicable as possible um, and being able to make it public and have it so that anyone can can share their thoughts and feedback, raise an issue and say, I don't, you know, I would love to see this added or I'd love to see that. You know, we can't always implement everything. Uh, 90 days sounds like a lot, but it is really, it's really not, you know, there's only so much you can fit into a three-month course. And so we do have to be quite restrictive, but at the same time, being able to get that feedback from the community, I think has definitely influenced a lot. Uh, so with our remaining time, since I think this episode has really absolutely flown by, at least for me, I'd love to dig in a little bit more to the curriculum itself. I, I think it's uh, it's something that I th have thought about a lot. Like how would I teach Elixir? How would I teach a functional programming first? If you're anticipating students coming through that don't even have any kind of programming background or like very minimal programming background. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you're thinking of the content, you know, I'm sure you've gone back and forth a lot, but how you're actually crafting the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I've learned a lot, that's for sure. Uh, I've kind of kept the same phases in my mind uh, for how I would walk someone through kind of very early uh, dev to um, our goal is to create, you know, production level engineers with the knowledge of Elixir, uh, Phoenix, LiveView, you know, the core um, tools in the community. And so it does go through in those kind of phases where we start off with early, you know, basics, uh, just getting syntax understanding. We cover a few just kind of general computer science concepts because we understand that not everyone's going to go through the course with that um, foundation, but we also try not to chew too much. There's there's many concepts that people can learn throughout their career, um, but there's others where like, if you don't understand enum, if you're not aware of that being a thing, like I would be a, I, I would have failed as a teacher uh, if any of my students come out of the course not understanding that. So there's there's certain things like that. And then it kind of goes through, you know, from basic syntax and solving logic problems to working on more mixed projects and understanding the tooling of building something more real to introducing Phoenix uh, and uh, introducing databases and RDMS, uh, sorry, relational database management systems um, and just understanding, you know, how do we build a more fully uh, featured application, a kind of web development in Phoenix um, to, you know, kind of advanced OTP concepts. Uh, we also cover a little bit of project management. So I'm kind of trying to take people from the basic building blocks and working their way up. What I have learned though, is that no content, no curriculum is ever going to cover everything and is never going to leave students not uh, having gaps in understanding. So the importance of having a teacher who can watch your progress and intervene when they notice that a concept isn't quite understood or is missed, um, that has been huge. It does, every time I catch it, I try to then encode it in the curriculum and make the curriculum better, but there's always gonna be times when there's gaps in understanding. So having someone there who can address that in real time, I've also found that, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think in development it's possible to truly learn in isolation. I think you need mentors. I think you need people who can help guide you along that path. Yeah, I think um, kind of what you're saying, that ability to be there in person and figuring out what gaps need to fill in and where to course correct is something that 
um, Stephen and I relied on a lot when we were teaching in person. And I think it's been challenging to translate to some of the virtual workshops we've been doing in recent years. Um, and Stephen, I'm sure you have thoughts on this, but I feel like a lot of what we did when we were teaching like in-person immersive programs was kind of just read the room. And I don't want to say wing it because like we were prepared to talk about what we knew or to dive into something new if we didn't know it, but be you ready meeting to the react. Moment, yeah, yeah, not meeting wing the moment. it per se, yeah, but yeah. something that sounds more professional and yeah, yeah. <laughs> fancy. Dynamic yeah. and, you know, <laughs> responding to <laughs> um, the needs of the moment. Make a yeah. plan, don't follow it. It's the rule of Dungeons and yeah. Dragons, which I truly <laughs> think is like, D&D is the meta skill to everything. That's um, so funny. <laughs> you you make lots of prep, but at the end of the day, you need to be present with the people in front of you and let them drive where you go. You may have had yeah, a plan, yeah. but it might mm -hmm. not work. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so important to have that flexibility. And it's a skill set that uh, serves you and your students when you're teaching. And it's also a skill set that I think serves you in like a professional engineering environment as well. Not being, I mean, what do we like to say as engineers? We like to say that beliefs should be, uh, what is it? something something but loosely held i, I was gonna say everything's a trade-off that's is what it? engineers like to say yeah. strong beliefs loosely held exactly right and i think that that translates to your role as uh as an engineer if you're in a full-time you know programming position and it absolutely applies to working in an educational setting too yeah i, I really love that i think um humanizing the experience as a teacher as well uh one of the things that has shaped is originally i thought oh man like suddenly i have the word instructor in my job title that's you know, I, I started out in Elixir, literally calling myself the Elixir newbie. Like that was my whole, hey, I'm like, I'm new. Um, and now there's the pressure of, okay, well, I have to, I have to know things um, because now I'm mm -hmm. saying that I can teach people. So there's responsibility there. But at the same time, I've found that um, making mistakes in front of students has actually yes. been really good for them. Like purposely pushing myself when I'm teaching, because sometimes you're teaching something, you realize, hey, I don't know. I didn't know that when pattern matching, I couldn't match on a key. I thought I could do that. I thought I could make it a variable and then get the value of the key. But, oh, hey, that actually doesn't work. And making that mistake in front of people to show them, hey, I'm thinking about this. I'm not, I don't have the answers memorized. I'm showing you my thought process. And then they feel more comfortable making a mistake too. Because, you know, if I can do it and roll past it and it's no big deal, then, then they can do it too. They also enjoy watching you mess up. I think, like, it it. I, think it I think it humanizes them. I think it I totally you. No, agree. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's sort of a moment where there's like, oh, he can bleed, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're you're sort of you're sort of in that moment where you're just like, oh, I'm. How does this work? But you know, I think it's our role to kind of like then model that good behavior of like being really mm -hmm. curious, running yes. small experiments, right, inching forward. Like, yes, it's a struggle. I have, I, I'll, you know, cards on the table. I have no idea what's happening right now. I have no idea why this isn't working. This should work as is. If you go to your desk and you try this, it should work for you. But let's figure out why it doesn't work for me. And you kind of like dive into it um, is actually really helpful for a, a number of reasons. So be human and bleed in front of your students. I don't know. I don't know where that metaphor went. This, but, this went to a know, very strange human. place. It sounds like I'm starting a cult now, which, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. We're, we're definitely. Newbies. But we'll talk offline. We'll we're talk all offline. over. We're, we're all over the cult of teaching. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I think it's so important because students will come into your classroom feeling like you are this untouchable person that knows everything and they are, you know, leagues behind or below you. And they have this perspective that if they put in enough effort and enough time that there will, there will come a day where they too know everything and they will not struggle anymore. 
Um, but that is absolutely not true. I have no idea what I'm doing like 99% of my day. It's always so hard. Sometimes I just want to like, you know, throw my computer out the window. So I think our responsibility as instructors is not so much to give them the answers to how coding works, but it's to give them the skills that they need to solve problems, like Stephen said, to inch forward and to help them become more fearless and more eager to seek out that discomfort that frankly never goes away. So giving folks that peek behind the curtain, what happens when I don't know uh, is like, is such a critical part of being an educator. Yeah, um, I, I really love that. And one of the things I wanted to tack on to that is um, the, uh, I really think that people should make themselves themselves available to uh, any devs, but I'm going to say newer devs, especially um, making it so that when people ask you questions, like I've been doing, um, so if anyone's interested in beta testing the academy, I also teach as part of that um, three to four times a week. I do these one hour to two hour sessions where people can just come in and ask questions. And one of the superpowers that Livebook gives me is the ability to reactively teach. Like, oh, a question came in. Let me write up some code for that super fast. I can write my instruction. Like it's so quick that it, it's not just this pre-prepared teaching tool. It can also be a live teaching tool for explaining a concept. Um, and, and yeah, you, you have a lot of fun doing that. I think that's been one of my, my most enjoyable moments is when someone asks a question like, well, uh, you know, I had someone ask a question recently, how do I connect uh, my, my Phoenix server with my React front end? And, and I think they kind of had a bit of a brain block where they're thinking them as like really connected rather than using like a communication like HTTP to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, and so I very quickly mixed Nude up a backend and then I popped open a live book. I'm like, pretend this is my client. I'm going to use HTTP to communicate with it. I wrote up a quick ping um, and just like being able to do that real time so that they could actually watch the code being written. And I didn't have this pre-prepared. It was just, I'm just going to do this in front of you. Um, super fun, super enjoyable, highly, highly recommend uh, becoming proficient with Livebook for that sake, but also just make yourself available to questions. Before I started writing, before I started doing anything public, um, I just became known as someone that people, even if I didn't work with their company, like if I knew programmer friends, I always said, hey, like, if you ever have a question, like, just send me a, send me a Slack. I'm happy to be your rubber duck and we can, we can go over it. So. Excellent. Yeah. I, I think that that's, um, that's something that I've noticed about the Elixir community is that that's not unusual. There are so many of us out there that are really open to just answering those one-off questions from whether it's a friend of a friend or a person at a meetup or a conference or, you know, engaging on Twitter. And that's something that really struck me when I was still learning. I mean, I'm certainly still learning Elixir, but when I was first learning, I should say, Elixir and first entering the community um, and to see you kind of embodying that Brooklyn and carrying it forward into Doctorate Academy is, it gives me a lot of joy. So Brooklyn, you said you do um, some lectures. If somebody wanted to um, get in on that, how would they do that? Yeah. So as part of beta testing the Academy, um, I do uh, instruction time as well as just open support time where people can ask questions. That's three to four times a week, uh, usually an hour or two hour long sessions. Uh, and if people want to get involved, uh, we're eventually going to make some kind of join link for that, I'm sure. But right now, the best way to get an invite is just to send me an email, um, brooklyn.myers at dockyard.com. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to put that in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in beta testing the Academy and being part of the uh, Docker Academy community. Uh, the beta 
Discord won't always be open. I imagine it'll probably uh, close once we actually launch the Academy. Um, and so if you want to get kind of early involved in that community, now is definitely the best time. Uh, and on that note, I think we're about ready to wrap it up. I definitely want to talk to you again, Brooklyn, once you start onboarding students and kicking off that first cohort. Um, I would love for our listeners to check out the open source beta curriculum that you're working on. I think we'll have a link in the show notes. Thank you for the work you're doing through Dockyard, through the Academy, just in the community in general. Um, I think, yeah, the community is lucky to have you and thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. I am incredibly grateful and fortunate to have this community. And a shout out to our sponsor, Graxio, which you guys know by now is career fuel for programmers. Like Bruce said at the top of the episode, they've got some great stuff coming up. Um, I'm very excited for what's going to be coming up this year with their content on LiveView Native, among many, many other things. So don't forget to check out Graxio. And thank you to Stephen and Alex, our co-host for today. I'll see you guys next time. And see. Uh, I want to I keep rap. talking about all of this forever. Right? Um, everything you said, Brooklyn, I feel like you just <laughs> yeah. pulled it right out of my own brain. And yeah, man, you're making me miss When you teaching. mentioned, oh, we're running out of time, I looked down, I'm like, it's been an hour? <laughs> it's been a full hour. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, my God.